Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word. And uh, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to study your word, to focus on that which has eternal value. Father, as we come from a prayer meeting, we continue to pray for uh, the conference that's coming up. We continue to pray for the um, uh, for Jim Myers as he's traveling, ministering down in Brazil uh, for the next week and a half. And we also continue to pray for a number of people who are on the sick list due to uh, cancer and various stages of recovery. Pray that you would uh, comfort them, give their doctors wisdom, and that their time as they're facing this uh, health test would be a time where they can be a faithful witness to you. Father, we thank you for this, the fact that we have this, your, this in your word tonight, the study of your word. We're thankful that uh, all of your word has equal value for us because it is all your word and it teaches us how to think about you and that all of this has been inspired by you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, continuing with some just some background study related to hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. That is, trying to understand the original intent of the author, and one of the great challenges is that has presented itself down through the ages, also been a source of a certain amount of, of, a, of a misinterpretation of Scripture, and that is understanding how the writers of the New Testament uh, inter- used Old Testament passages in the New Testament. And so I pointed out that there are four different ways. We started the last lesson, we started studying them in a little more detail than the summary I had presented before, simply because uh, as I've talked with people and heard feedback, I think that it's important to go through this material a little more slowly because it is so important to, in, in terms of just interpreting Scripture. So just by way of a quick review, the first pattern, the first way, is what we normally think of whenever we hear a writer or read a writer in the scripture saying thus and so was said by the prophet so and so this is fulfilled um, what was said by the prophet so and so we think of literal prophecy and literal fulfillment Matthew 2 5 uh, the response to where the question where Jesus was born was that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judah for thus it is written by the prophet And then the prophet that specifically stated this was Micah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read a specific literal prophetic statement indicating the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and that the one who would be born there indicating physical birth was one whose goings forth were from eternity. So also indicating he would have to be divine to be eternal. Then the second category we looked at was literal historical event, not a prophecy in the original uh, context. It's not a prophecy. It is a statement about a historical reality, a historical event. But it has a typological fulfillment. Now, a type is a word that uh, the term comes from a Greek word, tupos, meaning a mark or a stamp, and it indicates a pattern or foreshadowing, just as you would take a a, uh, a, an impression, a stamp, and place it in the soft 
uh, soft wax to create an impression. You have the type, which creates the impression, and then the antitype, which is what you see, the image you see in the, uh, uh, in the wax. So here we have a typological statement, Matthew 2.15, where uh, Matthew says that this, uh, the crying of the, uh, of the uh, or excuse me, that Jesus coming up from Egypt was a fulfillment. Notice the language there, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. So it still uses that fulfillment terminology, and the quote comes from Hosea 11.1. Now, Hosea is not giving a prophecy. He's just talking about the literal historical event when God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, they're, in, they're stated to be God's firstborn son. That's really the important aspect of this, is not just the historical event of Egypt, but the terminology used for my son. Now, this is also connected to the prophecy given by Balaam in Numbers chapter 23 and chapter 4, where you have uh, these different uh, prophecies or prophetic statements made by oracles made by uh, Balaam. And I pointed out last time in Numbers 24, 8, you have the phrase, God brings him out of Egypt. This is clearly a passage talking about the Messiah. Hosea is connecting to that. Hosea 11.1 1 is also related to this uh, uh, prophetic statement from Balaam in Numbers 24, verse 8, that is tied to the Messiah. And I looked at that last time, pointing out that here in Numbers 24.8, it's a second, uh, third person singular pronoun, whereas there's a reference to God bringing them, the nation, out of Egypt at the end of chapter 23, which is a plural pronoun. So here it's clearly referring to the individual, uh, the Messiah. Uh, also connecting verse 9 uh, relates it to a lion, which is a correlation from the blessing passage at the end of verse 9. Blessed is he who blesses you, cursed is he who curses you. That connects to the uh, promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12:2. And then the lion imagery relates to the lion of Judah and the prophecy that Jacob made over his son Judah in Genesis 49, verse 10, that the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah. That brings us to, let's see, um, do I have this in here twice? It looks like I do. Another example, maybe. Let me back up. Right slide up here. Okay, Matthew 15, 7, and 8 is another example of this where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees and says, Hypocrites, what did Isaiah, well did Isaiah prophesy about you? So the question is, did Isaiah literally prophesy about the, about the Pharisees? And in Matthew 15, 8, there is a quotation in 15, 8, and 9 from Isaiah 29:13 and the quote reads these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the command commandments of men now if you go back to Isaiah 29:13 it's talking about a historical event the people of Isaiah's day who are rejecting his message, they're ignoring what God is saying to them, and it is their negative volition that is being rebuked by Isaiah in Isaiah 29.13. But then what the Lord says is that Isaiah, when Isaiah said this, it had a, he's applying it typologically to the present day. The negative volition of the Jews at the time of Isaiah is a type of the antitype, which is the Pharisees' negative volition at the time of Christ. 
Isaiah is not making a literal prophecy in Isaiah 29:13. He is specifically rebuking his generation, the people who are addressing him. So the Lord is just applying this. So that's why I say this is where people start saying, well, wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense. But it's the only way to properly understand many of the, these passages is these, these different categories. So it does get, sometimes when you're going between uh, this category of typological fulfillment and the next category of application, sometimes the line seems a little uh, hard, to, hard to draw at times, and sometimes it's hard to say, well, is this a type or is this an application? But here we have a, a type that the generation, the negative volition of the generation in Isaiah's day is the reference in Isaiah 29, 13, and yet they serve as a type or a pattern of the future generation at the time of the Messiah. So then we have the third one. Now, what we've done so far is just review, except for that reference to that passage. And then we get to the third use, which is literal history, and then it's simply applied to a current situation. There's several things that are said. In the original passage, the original historical context, there are several things that characterize the present context of the writer of Scripture, but there is one point of commonality that is the area of analogy. And so this is why the writer under inspiration of Scripture is saying, uh, says this. Matthew 2.17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they, they are no more. Now this is a quote from Jeremiah 31.15. Jeremiah 31.15 reads, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter reaping, Rachel, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, at the time of Jeremiah, this is the time when uh, the southern kingdom of Judah has been overrun by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar and the People have been defeated and are being taken away in chains and being deported back to Babylon. And so the mothers of those young men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are being taken away are standing along the highway as the troops are carrying them away to captivity and they are weeping because they will never see their sons again. Now, there are, because of the fighting, it's obvious that some could have been killed, but primarily they're not weeping for those who are dead. They're weeping for those who are they will never see again. Ramah is north of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was south of Jerusalem. So there's the only point of similarity is the mothers of Israel who are pictured by Rachel, who was the wife of Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel by God. So just as Jacob is pictured as the father of the 12 tribes, Rachel is pictured as the mother of of the 12 tribes of Israel, even though she's not literally the mother of every one of the 12 sons. She is used that way as the mother, as a representative of the mothers of Israel. And so she is weeping for her children, the mothers of Israel, are weeping for her children. So the only point of, of similarity here is the mothers weeping because they won't see their children again. The reason differs, the place differs, but there's only that one point of similarity, and so an application is made of the historical passage to the current passage. Now, this is done under divine inspiration. Then we come to the fourth use, which I think is one of the most interesting because this happens several times in the New Testament. And uh, there's one example of this from uh, rabbinic literature, Midrash Rabbah 6311, where it says, Hence it is written as in the verse, and I will no more make you a reproach of famine among the nations. Now, this particular... This particular prophecy 
is not stated in any one particular location uh, in uh, in the Old Testament. There's no actual verse that reads like this, but it is a combination of concepts that are found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 30, and Joel 1.19. So here's an example straight out of a commentary written uh, about the same time as the first century uh, or maybe a little bit earlier where they're using the same approach of just sort of uh, pulling together the main ideas of several verses in the Old Testament and stating that as a fulfillment. We see it in Scripture in Matthew 2.23, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, there's no passage anywhere in Scripture that states that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. But by Nazareth is where Jesus was raised, and he is uh, raised in Nazareth. But Nazareth was just a very small village. Uh, When I've been to Israel and we've been to um, uh, Sephoris, which was a Roman city that was about three um, three miles from Nazareth, and it's up on the ridge, and this was a beautiful Roman city that was built, and it had incredible mosaic floors and columns, and it was a large city of, of uh, 12, 15,000 people, and it was being built mostly during the time that Jesus was growing up, and this would have been where Joseph would have worked, and he would have taken off every day and walked three or four miles to Sephoris and worked there. Carpenter doesn't just mean like it does for us, somebody works with wood. He would have worked with stone. He would have worked with all the building materials. He was basically uh, a, a builder. A, he was involved in construction, uh, stone masonry, that kind of thing. And so he would have taken off every day. And then, as was typical in a Jewish culture, when Jesus became old enough to go with him, he would have apprenticed to his father, and he would have gone along with him. And then they went back to this little bitty Nazareth, which was... Nothing had a population probably less than 150 or 200. It was very small, and the reputation was that anybody from Nazareth uh, just couldn't be too bright. I mean, it's just a small backwater town, and we have places like that in the United States. You know, people make jokes about Arkansas if you're there from Texas, or if you're from Houston, you make jokes about people in Pasadena, or if you live up in the Northeast, you make jokes about people who live up in Maine. I remember when we first moved up there hearing that if you cross the border into Maine, somebody from Maine told me this, you cross the border into Maine, your IQ dropped 50 points. So every place has some place where they like to make jokes about folks from that town. Nazareth was that way. So by calling uh, Jesus a Nazarene, it's a summary of all of the various different passages, such as Isaiah 49, 1 to 13, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. All these passages talk about the fact that Jesus was despised and rejected among men. And so that's summarized by this term Nazarene, because as uh, <clears throat> Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So that was the that was the idea. So it's a summary of what the scripture what the scripture teaches. Now, as we get into our little episode here in Acts chapter one, there are three or four citations from the Old Testament, and we need to look at these and understand how they are being used, and the, and evaluate the legitimacy of that, and also see how that fits within the pattern of the New Testament. So. When Peter calls the 120 together in the upper room, we're told in Acts 1.15, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, although the number of names was about 120. It included both men and women, but it's the men who are the ones who make the decision and the ones who are addressed. And so uh, Peter addresses the men and brethren. This scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. That's a nice way to put it about Judas and his betrayal. He's a guide to the uh, Roman soldiers who are going to arrest and eventually crucify Jesus. 
of what Peter says is, an, is a statement that the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. So the question is, where did this occur? Where in the uh, Psalms do you find David mentioning Judas? Well, you don't. So this isn't an example of, of uh, literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. It's not a statement of literal history and typological fulfillment at, at this point, or it could be typological fulfillment when we get into the verse. Uh, it could be summary. And I think in Acts one sixteen he's simply summarizing what is said in various royal psalms, various messianic psalms, which speak of the uh, enemies of the Messiah. When you get into looking at these psalms, you need to realize that the royal psalms all anticipate something that is similar between what is going on with the Davidic king, with David, and with the future son of David, son of man, with the future king, the future Messiah. And so there are parallels uh, that take place. And so this is seen in these royal psalms. And so in verse 16, we really have a summary usage here. This is what the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, uh, Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now, there is no specific passage that you can go to for this. There are, though, a number of different places that indicate that um, they're, they're clearly royal psalms, they're messianic psalms, and when they speak of the enemies of David, that is a, uh, a pattern or a type of the enemies of the Messiah. One such verse is found in Psalm 41, verse 9. Psalm 41, verse 9. And this reads, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I think this is the original statement. It may be summary, but if this verse is the verse that Peter had in mind, and we don't know because he doesn't quote it, then it would have to do with uh, typology. And uh, But summary is probably the best way to categorize this, that the Holy Spirit spoke by the mouth of David concerning Judas, and that would just summarize what's in all of these various uh, royal psalms that uh, picture the enemies and the hostilities to the Messiah. Now, before we go any further, I want you to just turn back to the psalms, and, we're, and we'll just stay there for a little while because we'll look at two or three different psalms to see how this, how this works. Psalm 41, we have, Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth, and, he will, and you will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. That's a reference to the royal, uh, the Davidic king, to David himself. Verse 4, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. And so in the royal psalms, the enemies of David are parallel to the enemies of the Messiah, the, the greater son of David. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die? And his name perish. He comes to see me. He speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is usually thought to refer to Ahithophel, who betrayed David and then hung himself. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 16, 20 through 17, 3. Yet it is not certain, of course, that this is exactly the verse that uh, Peter had in mind, but it is one of several places in the royal Psalms that depict this. Now, 
we have in the flow of the of what Luke is writing, he says he quotes from Peter in verses 16 and 17. And then in verse 18, we have a parenthesis. This is Luke writing that Peter didn't say verses 18 and 19. Luke is inserting this because he's writing to Theophilus, a Gentile, and he's explaining uh, who Judas was. And so in verse 18 we read, Now this man, referring to Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. Now, critics will question this and say, Well, Judas didn't purchase a field. He... Um, he, he didn't fall headlong. He hung himself, but he didn't fall down and split open. Uh, so we have to, we'll address that a little bit as we look at the passage. And then verse 19, we read, And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that, uh, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Now, this is a fulfillment. Luke is writing this, and it fulfills an Old Testament prophecy related to the betrayal of the Messiah. And this is found in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. And this is prophecy, literal prophecy, literal fulfillment. Zechariah 11, 12, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. That's the betrayal amount that was paid to Judas to betray the Lord. And then Zechariah 11:13, the Lord said to me, "Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me." So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Now this event is a is a type of what happens with Judas. This is what's re- and it's referred to or alluded to in Matthew 27, verses 3 through um, 8, and that's the event itself that uh, we have in Scripture describing uh, Jesus' betrayal. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what's that to us? You see, to he said, we don't care. We don't want your money back. You know, go enjoy it. Matthew 27, 5, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. So he, he's overwhelmed with g- grief and guilt, and he won't use it, so he just throws it in the temple, and he goes out and he hung himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood, or Akeldama, to this day. So this is the literal fulfillment of the uh, betrayal prophecy. Now, how do you solve the problem of it saying that Judas fell down and his entrails burst open? Well, it's conceivable that when he hung himself that uh, the branch broke or something like that. His body fell down, and this is what happened. Or it could be that when he was found, when he was discovered, it might have been a day or two uh, later and the body has already gone through a level of putrefaction, and so when they cut the uh, cut the rope that he was hanging by, then his body fell down and split open. So there are ways of explaining that without saying, "Oh golly, now we have a contradiction in Scripture." See, liberals are already always ready to immediately jump at something on the surface that appears to be a contradiction without investigating uh, a little further. So we come then to Acts. Uh, 1 verse 20. This is back to Peter. We had a two verses of a parenthetical explanation by, by Luke that's inserted into this. So this shows us Luke's personal, inspired commentary and approval of what Peter is saying because he's, he's coming in and he's giving further inspired explanation of what Peter is saying and why he is saying it. In verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let this dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, 
and let another take his office. So what Peter is doing here is he's going into the Psalms, just as we find in various other passages. He's not doing, it may appear to us to be that he's doing this just willy-nilly, that he's just grabbing a phrase here and grabbing a phrase there. But there are so many places in Acts where you find this kind of thing. If you stop and really analyze those, what we see is that the disciples are thinking profoundly about the meaning that's in the Psalms, and they're taking these phrases and these words, and they're weaving them together to create an art, in one case in Acts chapter 7, to create a or excuse me, in Acts chapter 4, to create an argument in prayer towards God and uh, in some other places. So what Peter is doing here is he's taking two, uh, citing from two different passages um, in the Old Testament. He's going to quote uh, from Psalm 69.25, and the second part comes from Psalm 109, verse 8. Psalm 69 is an Old Testament passage that clearly is speaking of, of the Messiah. And it, there are a number of verses that are taken out of Psalm 69 that are applied by Jesus or by the disciples to events in Jesus' life. So we need to look at that. So you were in Psalm 41, so turn over just about 20 Psalms to Psalm 69. Psalm 69. Now, let's get a little background on Psalm 69. It's a psalm of David. This is considered to be another royal psalm, another messianic psalm that is applied to the Messiah. And it starts off where David is crying to God for help when he is under attack by his enemies. He cries out in verse 1, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire." Where there's no standing, I've come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. I'm weary with my crying, my throat is dry, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. Uh, many believe that this is written at a time when uh, David was being chased and persecuted by Saul. Verse 4, he says, Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Now that's going to be quoted in the New Testament, but... What's the original context here? He's talking about the enemies, whether it's Saul or whether it's at the time of Absalom. There are numerous enemies who are chasing David. He says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. So this is a historical situation. They are mighty, uh, they are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Oh God, you know my foolishness. And my sins are not hidden from you. So obviously the one who's writing is a sinner. He's not putting these words in the mouth of the Messiah. They're talking about his original historical context. In verse 6 he says, Let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. So let's see how some of these verses are used. In John 2:17. We have the comment uh, when Jesus had made his statement to the Pharisees that after uh, you, you destroy this temple, then after three days um, I will restore it. Uh, his disciples remembered later. This is John writing, and this is, he says, after. So this is after the resurrection. His disciples are going to remember that uh, it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So John is applying something from the Old Testament, Psalm 69, the zeal that Jesus had for the temple to Jesus. And, in, and we find this in Psalm 69, verse 9, which reads in the original context, Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, the first half of that verse is quoted in, in John 2.17. The second half of that verse, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me, is going to be found uh, also in, uh, in the New Testament. So if you just look at this in terms of John 2.17, it looks as if the disciples are just 
grabbing this phrase out of Psalm 69 because it seems to be similar to and applying it, but this is done under divine inspiration. This is what uh, Bob Thomas refers to as uh, inspired census plenure. We can't duplicate this. We're not supposed to try to imitate this approach to exegesis because this is done under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who's going back and lifting these phrases out of their original context and applying them to these other situations. So this would be a historical event with um, typology because David is using to refer to himself as the royal king and the type is of the Messiah as the royal, as the royal Messiah. Another example is John 15:25, uh, where John says, "But this happened uh, that the word, or Jesus is speaking here and says, "But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause." Now here's Jesus taking a phrase out what might appear to us at some point, out of context, and it comes out of Psalm 69 verse four. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. And all Jesus does is, and he slightly changes the, um, the, the pronouns there and quotes it as they hated me without a cause. So he, there's a typology here from the historical event in David's life to the uh, circumstance of rejection of the Messiah by the leaders in Israel. Another example is in Romans 15.3, where uh, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does the same kind of thing. He says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. And this is a quote from the second part of Psalm 69.9, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. So you wouldn't, by reading Psalm 69, you wouldn't necessarily see anything there that's a prophecy related to Jesus. But under inspiration, Paul takes a phrase and says, see, this applies to that circumstance. So this shows the pattern of how these psalms are used. In Romans 11, 9, and 10, uh, Paul, again, dealing with uh, the future for Israel and God's plan for Israel, quoting the psalms, uh, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. And this comes from Psalm 69, 22 and 23. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continuously. Now, in the original context... This doesn't have anything to do historically with what's going on in Romans chapter 11. But there is a type there, there's a pattern there that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is taking and applying it to the rejection generation of the Jews at the time of of, uh, Jesus in the first century. So all of those uses coming out of Psalm 69 fit the same pattern in the same way that Peter quotes from Psalm 69, uh, 25, when he says, uh, takes that first phrase, uh, let their dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in their tents. Now what um, Peter has been saying, to go back and pick up his argument there, just stay in the Psalms because we're not through there. We have one more to look at, but I'm going to go back to Acts 1. Peter said, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. So he's applying, in verse uh, 25, he's applying that to, uh, to Judas. If we look at the context, um, there is a condemnation that is being made against those who have rejected David, And verses 22 and 23 are then lifted. That's what I just alluded to, just used as a reference in Romans, um, let me see, Romans 11, 9, and 10, uh, quotes, applies Psalms 69, 22, and 23 
to the rejection generation of Jesus' time. And then in verse 25, in verse 24, there's a cry. And this is a, um, a psalm where uh, David is calling upon God to bring his judgment upon his enemies. And in verse 24, he says, Pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate, that no one live in their tents. So in the original historical context, it's talking about God bringing a harsh judgment against the enemies of the Messiah. And so Peter picks up that verse, and he applies it to the judgment, obviously, that God brought on Judas, the sin unto death, causing Judas to uh, hang himself, and to have such horrible guilt and remorse uh, before he did that. So that is an application and a use of Psalm 69.25, which fits consistently with all these other passages that are quoted out of Psalm 69 by Jesus, by John, by uh, by Paul, and others. Then the next quote, that second quote that we find in Acts one twenty. He says, let another take his office. And this comes out of Psalm 109, verse 8. Psalm 109, verse 8. So let's go to Psalm 109. Now, it wasn't long ago, it was just over Christmas, that's a long time for some people, I know, that we studied Psalm 110, which is one of the greatest messianic psalms, when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. And when we studied that, I pointed out that Psalm 110 fits within a pattern that we find in the, um, in the structure of these psalms from Psalm 107 to Psalm 113. In Psalm 107 through 109, the main theme in these three psalms is a cry or a plea on the part of Israel for a deliverer. In Psalms 111 to 113, the main theme is that there is a praise to God for providing a deliverer. And what's sandwiched between them as the hinge psalm is Psalm 110, which is all about God's provision of this deliverer who sits at his right hand. He's pictured as the, uh, at the beginning of the psalm, he is the one who is uh, seated at the right hand, and he is the one who is going to rule. And then in the last part, uh, he is the one who is going to uh, bring uh, victory. And then in between you have verse 4, which is the focal point of the psalm, that he is going to be a priest forever, according to the, um, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 109 comes at the end of those introductory psalms there, which express a plea for deliverance. And this is also seen and understood historically as a messianic, as a messianic psalm. And we read the verse in question is, let his days be few, verse 8, let his days be few, and let another take his office. Now, if you look back, let's just read the context. Uh, David says, do not keep silent, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Now, this is all said by David in terms of his historical situation, but he, it is also applied as a messianic psalm. It's applied typologically to Jesus. This is true of Jesus as the greater son of David. He is... Uh, the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are accusing him of all manner of false things and slandering him. Uh, they surround him with words of hatred. They uh, fought against him without a cause. He was innocent. He was not guilty of any crime or any sin. And verse 4, David says, In return for my love, they are my accusers. That is applied to Jesus, who is perfect love towards all of Israel, and yet they rejected his love, and they are accusing him. And David says, then in the second part of verse 4, But I give myself to prayer, thus they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. All of this applies to the rejection of the Messiah. 
Then verse 6, set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. This is applied to Judas as the one who betrayed Jesus and brings accusation against him. And then um, verse 7, when he is judged, that is, the let him be found guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. So Peter is taking this in a context of messianic rejection that speaks of the one who would betray the Messiah, and he is then applying that to Judas, let another take his office. And so this is the rationale that he sets up. Now let's go back to Acts chapter 1. So what we see here, two things to point out, is that... uh, Peter is structuring his rationale for replacing Judas according to uh, a use of Scripture that fits the pattern of the interpretation of these, uh, these psalms in context. And so he draws a conclusion in verse 21. He says, Therefore, since this wicked man is desolate and the Scripture says we should replace his office, he says, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John uh, to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So his, he sees the primary purpose of this this person as being a witness of his resurrection, but he had to be also be a witness of his entire life. Now, I have two questions about this, because normally when you look up in any commentary, you read anybody's talking about the qualifications of an apostle, no matter who they are, whether they accept this or they don't accept this as a legitimate decision on the part of, of um, Peter, is they all seem to think that part of the qualifications of being a disciple is that they're being a witness of the resurrection and of Jesus' teaching, and they'll quote this as if this is right. I find that very interesting that you have this sort of this. I would say that if I, if, if I did not believe this was a legitimate decision, I wouldn't be quoting Peter here as giving legitimate qualifications for an apostle. I mean, he's either right or he's wrong. You can't say, well, he's wrong on part of it and right on the other part. Because uh, nowhere else in Paul's defense of his apostleship does he repeat both of these qualifications. He just repeats the fact that he has to be a witness of his resurrection that d- would not in and of itself negate the other part. So what they do at that point is they appointed two men. They, they, they're thinking about this. They're giving this serious thought. They're looking at all of those that have been with them for the last three-plus years, and they realize there's only two men who have a solid reputation, only two men who've been with them all that time and believers from the very beginning, and that is Joseph called Barsabbas, Joseph uh, called Barsabbas, who's surnamed Justice, and Matthias. These are the only two that could possibly qualify as being with with the uh, disciples. And then the next thing they do is they pray about it. Now, we all know that just because somebody prays about it doesn't mean so. That's because we live in a jaded generation when people uh, pray about everything in the name of Jesus, and it's prayers that don't get any higher than the ceiling. But let's not force our... uh, horrible, jaded, 20th century Christian uh, hypocrisy back into the first century. They prayed, and they said there's not a single example of the disciples praying anywhere in the book of Acts that is condemned. They prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen. So they were recognizing the principle that Jesus is the one who would choose a disciple. They're not making that choice. They have selected two. Now, the question is, maybe if they, maybe they should have just left it alone and let Jesus choose whomever out of the whole group instead of just among those two. That's not what they did. They picked two, and Jesus is going to indicate one or the other. 
uh, and he goes on to say, uh, which of these two you have chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, or they cast their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, what is all this about casting lots? This, to me, is an, a major issue for a lot of people. In the, we don't know exactly how this worked. Whether it was, it's not throwing dice. I mean, that's just, that's, that, that may be a 20 cent, but in dice, I, I don't know the probabilities. You have six sides of each cube, and so you've got, what is it, six times six? I guess you got 30, is that right? 36 possibilities that you come up with on a pair of dice, if you use a pair of dice. Um, but this was more like casting down, um, like you would pick, pick, um, um, maybe draw straws or you would put a number one for Matthias and number two for the other guy and you would draw one and whoever drew the right name, that's the one who would get the Messiah, something of that nature. But it has that element of chance to it that God would, uh, God would provide the answer. And this is a legitimate means of decision-making that is seen throughout the Old Testament. God never rebuked it. In fact, there are a number of different occasions where using the lot to make a decision was uh, was uh, commanded by God in Leviticus sixteen eight through ten, the selection of the scapegoat was done by lot. In the allocation, now this is very important: the allocation of tribal lands and inheritance after the conquest was done by casting lots. This is seen in Numbers 26, 55, and 56, in Joshua 14, 2, number of passages in Joshua, actually, uh, Judges 1, 3, and other passages. Um, it's also seen in the determination of families who had to relocate uh, after a war or devastation of some sense, and this was used in Nehemiah 11, so it's a post-exilic use, as well as earlier in Judges chapter 20. Verse 9, in determining the order of the priests and their duties, this was also done according to Lot, uh, based on First Chronicles 24, 5 through 19, and again in a post-exilic environment in Nehemiah 10, verse 34. It was done to determine an offender, one of the most uh, clear examples of using the, the Lot was in identifying Achan. Achan was the man who disobeyed God in the conquest of Jericho, and he took some of the gold and the silver and the booty, and he took it back, and he hid it under his tent, dug a hole, hid it under his tent, and God had said that they were to destroy everything. They weren't to keep any animals alive, kill, kill the men, kill the women, kill the babies, kill all the uh, animals, and don't keep anything for yourself. And Achan kept some for himself. He hid it under his tent. And so the first time that the Israelites went out to go to battle against Ai, they failed. And uh, several thousand were killed, two or three thousand were killed. And they came back and they're all depressed and they're all upset because they were defeated in battle. And they're blaming Moses and they're blaming God and they're just having a huge pity party. And God said, the real problem here isn't Moses, I mean, isn't Joshua, it isn't uh, me, it is their sin in the camp. And here's how we're going to identify who the sinner is. We're going to cast lots. And so the lot goes to the tribe of, that Achan was in and then to the clan that he was in and then uh, to his particular tent and family. And then he was executed and his family was executed because of his sin. All that is done by casting lots, and it's divinely authorized. So it's very clear that the use of casting lots was a divinely authorized means of decision-making in, uh, in Scripture. And it was done in a number of other uh, situations. And in Proverbs chapter 16.33 states that the decision of the lot comes, the lot is cast into the lap or cast into the... Uh, the, the breast, uh, it's, it's, it's the idea that it is you take your robe and hold it out, and that's where you would cast the lot. Uh, the lot is cast into the lap, but its decision is from the Lord. So it's an emphasis there 
on the fact that God is the one who oversees the decision that comes from casting lots. And this was used legitimately in a period when the canon of Scripture wasn't closed, when there is still direct special revelation uh, going on. So we... uh, I'm uncomfortable. I don't, I don't think it's as clear as Jesus saying, I'm choosing you. But Scripture is very clear. There's nothing negative ever said in Scripture about the practice of casting lots in order to determine a decision. So we see that Peter's making a decision. He is doing this on the basis of an accepted and normative practice of interpreting the Old Testament And he's not doing this apart from the Holy Spirit. Now, I have read through a number of different uh, comments and arguments made by different people, and one well-known radio broadcaster uh, stated three arguments why he didn't believe that the choice of Matthias was legitimate. And he says, um, first of all, he said the strongest argument is that there's, it's not the leading of the Holy Spirit. Neither was it God's leading in the casting of lots. Now, in light of what Scripture says, I have a problem with anyone saying it's not the leading of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 20, verse 22 and 23, Jesus said, uh, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That second line is a statement that is made several times by Jesus in reference to their apostolic authority. And so in John 20, this is in the same scene where uh, Thomas has put his hand on the wounds of Jesus and on his nail prints, in that same scene, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit on them and commissions them as apostles and gives them new authority as apostles from his resurrection body. So it's very hard to say that these guys are operating without the Holy Spirit in light of John 20, uh, 22, and 23. Uh, the second statement that you can't say it's God's leading in the casting of lots is that it's still in a period before Pentecost when the Holy Spirit hasn't been given as a whole. It's a period when uh, no New Testament revelation has been given, uh, no real, the church hasn't been given birth to yet. It's just, I mean, it, it, it begs the question. Both of these arguments are, 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 violate several laws of logic. So you can't really go there to to argue that case at all. Um, The second thing, a third thing he says, he asks the question, is Matthias actually the one who took the place of Judas? And he says, I don't think so. I believe that in his own time, the Lord Jesus himself appointed one to take the place of Judas Iscariot. Well, okay, what's your basis for that? That's the question. It's not a scriptural basis. That's expressing an opinion. It's not basing it on an exegetical argument. And then he says, the, we, the reason for this is we don't hear another word about Matthias. Nothing is recorded of his ministry. Nothing's recorded of the ministry of Nathaniel and Bartholomew or Matthew or any of the others. The only ones we ever hear anything more about in Scripture are Peter and John and James' name is mentioned in Acts, but nothing he says is mentioned in Acts. So we have nine of the 12, or eight of the 11, if you don't want to include Matthias, that are never mentioned again in Scripture. But we do have historical allusions to them in the first century who accept Matthias as an apostle and accept uh, all of the others and tell us where they went and what they did. Some of it's legend, some of it contradicts what one person says may contradict what another person says, so the the data is not always the best, but it's um, it's there, and there's clearly statements made about Matthias. So, at the end of the day, I find that the strongest argument against Matthias is that Jesus didn't directly choose him. But that only works if the lot argument is invalid. If the casting of the lots isn't any, isn't right. And if that's, that was done illegitimately, 
then you can say that Jesus did not directly choose Matthias. Uh, so the weakness, the strongest, I mean, the main weakness with Matthias is the textual argument. I mean, if you say Matthias probably, it wasn't right to choose Matthias because Jesus didn't directly choose him, that is a theological deduction. That is not a textual argument. The text never says that. That's a deduction from an observation. The text, though, in Acts 6, 2, says the 12. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, just to read it to you, Acts chapter 6, verse 2 says, Then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, There's one place in John 20 where it speaks of the 12, and there's only 11. But Judas may not have hung himself yet. You're not, we're not sure on the chronology there. If that's the same day, it may or may not have done it. But it's very clear from Matthew 28:16 they're called the 11. In Mark 16:14 they're called the 11. In Luke 24:9 they're called the 11. In Luke 24:33 they're called the 11. So on these four distinct occasions, the disciples minus Judas are called the eleven. And the end of Acts chapter 1, they are called, uh, that Matthias is numbered with the eleven, so he's added to the eleven. And then in Acts 2, Peter speaks along with the eleven. He's part of them. So they're seen in Acts 2 as 12. They're seen in Acts 6, 2 as 12. So it is clear that they included Matthias in their number, and that's a textual argument because Acts 6, 2 calls them 12. That's the difference between a theological deduction and a textual argument. And frankly, it seems like the textual argument always trumps a theological deduction. Let me see, 10 times out of 10. That's how it works. So I have problems with the selection of Matthias. I always have had problems with selection of Matthias. But having gone through all of this, what we see is very likely that God the Holy Spirit, who's been breathed out by, by the Lord Jesus Christ in John 20, and who is guiding and directing the 12, the 11, excuse me, the 11 until the day of Pentecost, means that they're not just operating on their own apart from the Holy Spirit. The use by Luke, the injection by Luke of his own explanation in the middle of Peter's sermon and verses 18 and 19 describing what had happened to, uh, to, to, uh, Matthi- uh, excuse me, to Judas indicates that he's not being judgmental of what, P- what uh, Peter is doing here. He's writing this 30 years later. So if this was a mistake and Matthias isn't part of the 12, why does it matter 30 years later unless what, what Luke is showing is how God is overseeing and expanding the church from this base? Now, the other problem that we run into is Revelation chapter 21, which speaks of the 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That, if that means and I'm not sure that it does, if that means there's only 12 apostles and no more, then Matthias isn't legitimate and the apostle Paul would have to be the 12th. But if that means that of the 12 that Jesus originally chose and he spoke to them clearly in the Gospels and said they were the ones who would judge over Israel, that's not envisioning uh, Paul at that point. He's, he could easily be saying those 12 are related to Israel and the Jews, and they would rule over, or they would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But Paul, as the unique apostle to the Gentiles, is distinct, and he's not considered part of the 12. He would be the 13th apostle saved as uh, one out of time. So you get to make the decision. On the one hand... Jesus didn't choose Matthias. He's the only one that wasn't chosen directly by Jesus. But if you say that, you have to say the lot's not a legitimate decision-making. Then you've got a real problem with half, a lot of the Old Testament. 
On the other hand, if Matthias is chosen, you can't say, well, he's never heard from again because none of the rest of them are ever heard from again. And it's just showing how at this early stage before uh, the day of Pentecost, the apostles are trying to organize themselves and the Lord gives them a freedom. And as we get into Acts, you will see that he gives a freedom to the apostles in the decision-making to organize themselves. It's done under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, but what we end up with is something that moves beyond the apostles. They're just the foundation and moves by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts to a... um, a circumstance where the church is led by local leaders, by the pastor and the deacons in the local congregation. So I'll leave it at that. Bottom line is, in some ways, it doesn't matter because we never hear from any of these other guys again, although they do have a great role in the plan of God. But God knows which one, whether they're 12 or 13. It's that same conundrum we have with the, the list of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's really 13 tribes, and there's always called 12. God has an interesting system of mathematics. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to come to understand your word a little better and come to understand how the apostles interpreted your word and used it because this is really going to help us understand so much as we go forward in our study in Acts. We thank you that you have established the church on the foundation stone of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone and the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and that we have your word that is clear to us and has clearly been clearly revealed your will to us so that we can understand it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.